We started this series a couple of weeks ago in chapter 6, where we find in verses 6 through 8 the theme for the whole book, uh, which is in two parts, liberated in order to redeem, liberation from from Exodus, uh, liberated from Egypt in chapters 1 to 19, and then 20 to the end of the book is God's law, His law given to us uh, from the beginning to indicate we need to be redeemed. Because remember, the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai, but also all of the ceremonial laws. God says from the beginning, I know you can't keep these laws, so I'm pointing you immediately to the Savior. You're going to need the blood of a lamb. And uh, your motivation for living these laws will be in response, grateful response to the redemption you've experienced out of Egypt. It is the gospel in this book. It is the anticipation of Christ and also the pattern for how we live the Christian life. It's good news. It's good news from beginning to end, and it's good news because it demonstrates to us that God has given us a whole Christ for our whole person. You have a Savior, not just for your soul, not just for your brain, not just for your thinking, but you have a Savior for your whole life who brings a kingdom that will rule and reign over this earth as well as heaven. You're ready to embark on this journey, however long it may take, to get through the book of Exodus, but we'll look at every verse from beginning to end. We begin this morning, chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read only through verse 14. We won't get through verse 22. And let me remind you what we're doing in the evening, too. We've repeated the catechism uh, for the evening sermon. So today is question two, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him the Word of God contained in the Old Testaments, Old and New Testaments, that's the old version. Uh, but that's the only authority for glorifying and enjoying Him. And that will be our theme for this evening and the evening service. But this morning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service 
in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt, I am going to read a little bit farther. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers but the flower, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will last forever. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Oh, Lord, would you open our eyes to see liberating and redemptive truths from this portion of the gospel. May we see Jesus here, not because we insert him unnaturally here, but may we see Christ here because he is the one redeeming the Old Testament people of Israel so that there would be a line through whom the Messiah would come. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for writing these things down for us, that we today might know that in Christ there is liberation, and in Christ there is redemption, and may you empower us to be liberators and redeemers. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake, and God's people said together, amen. <clears throat> when I was in seminary, there was... I had a fellow student who was 40 years my senior. He was pursuing the same degree as I was, and he was chairman and CEO of a significant bank in St. Louis. He was a fascinating man to me. I knew why I was going through seminary. I needed a job. He didn't need a job. Why was he going through seminary? The more I got to know him, the more and more fascinated I became with him, the more I admired him, eventually joined the church I pastored, became a very dear friend. He said he needed to know God's Word better in order to be a better leader of his bank, a better leader of his family. He was a countercultural guy, rather small in stature, soft-spoken, uh, a contagious smile, unassuming, but nerves of steel. He said he needed to know more of God's Word because he was putting into place a Christian culture in his bank. It was a publicly held company, had shareholders and a and board of directors. In fact, he almost didn't get his job to begin with because he was so vocal about his faith. He explained very clearly that he was a believer in Jesus Christ and he was the Lord of his life. And it would be his, his plan to, to, to bring in a Christian culture to his company. He wouldn't impose it on anyone. He wouldn't, he, wouldn't, uh, he, he wouldn't beat anybody over the head with it, but he was going to pursue his Christian values, the what Jesus told him to do. He opened the bank personally every morning early before hours in order to let the employees in who wanted to. He didn't make any of them come, but he led a Bible study and prayer meeting every morning for all of the employees. He explained 
the Christian culture. He said he wanted everyone to live by the Ten Commandments. They didn't have to follow Christ, but he wanted them to be moral representatives of their bank inside and out. And then they acquired other banks around the country in places that were far outside the Bible Belt. And then, to my great surprise, he would go and he would explain that same Christian culture and those same Christian values in each of those banks that were acquired. It wasn't always popular, but the bank prospered and he continued to lead. When he became a member of of my church, I, I said, you know, Harry, you know, there's this thing, this new thing called political correctness. And, uh, you know, they expect people to talk certain ways and not to say things about uh, certain other things. You have a publicly held company. Aren't you afraid, aren't you afraid, Harry, that someday you're going to lose your job, that someday you're going to be sued? And he said, as he had told me many times before, George, when Jesus saved me as a high schooler, I was so happy. I was so relieved when he saved me from my sins, when he gave me something uh, eternally significant to do, when he called me to himself, when he made me a member of his family. I was so grateful. I told Jesus, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. I will never close my mouth. I will never shrink back from sharing my faith. Lord Jesus, no matter what the cost, I will do that. George, I forgot to say, unless I'm sued or unless I lose my job. I just forgot to say that to Jesus. I only promised that I would always open my mouth and tell others how great my Savior is. Jesus Christ has liberated you. If He is your Lord and Savior, He has liberated you to make you a liberator. He has redeemed you to include you in this cosmic work of redemption. And the Holy Spirit gives you the courage necessary to step into those places of brokenness and give that good news. There's no excuse, no excuse we can ever make for closing our mouths or shrinking back from the good news of a whole Christ for all of life. Every form of oppression is mentioned or alluded to in this first chapter. We haven't read all the verses yet. We'll take up whatever we don't get to today as well as more next week. But we'll find four in this chapter. We'll find political oppression and economic oppression and spiritual oppression and social oppression. And we will find that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer from all of those forms of oppression. The first one you find is in verses 8 through 10. That these Israelites, God's people, were set free by Moses representing the work of Christ set free from their political oppressors. Now, political oppression is not just from those who are elected in office. It's a system. It's any system, any system, official or otherwise, that tells you 
you must submit to rules that are additional to or contradicting God's rules, God's Word, the only authority given for directing us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. So any system that is official or unofficial but organizes itself to say to you dogmatically, you must follow our ways, even if they are contradicting or in addition to the only authority, God's Word, for glorifying and enjoying Him. That's what's happened here. You, you remember, perhaps you remember the story of how the Israelites got here. They, they were starving to death, literally starving to death, and they came to uh, Egypt because God had set up Joseph, Jacob's son. And Joseph had, by God's providence, been exalted to a high place in the kingdom of Egypt, and he had stored up grain, and they came there under his sponsorship and under his protection, and they were, and they were fed, and they prospered, and they multiplied, the text tells us. And as long as Joseph was alive, the Pharaoh, loving Joseph, loved the people of Israel. Joseph also represents the work of Christ. But when Joseph died, another line of Pharaohs arose, and they did not know Joseph, didn't remember Joseph, didn't care for Joseph. All they knew is they had these foreigners in their land who were multiplying greatly, and because their God was themselves, they were intimidated by these. And so they chose to oppress them. They chose to dominate them for this reason. They chose to reject them for this reason. They were born wrong. They were genetically disqualified to be on an equal par with them. Now, it's a common strategy throughout world history. It's happened to the Jews throughout history. As far back as the 12th century, we can find despots saying, because you are genetically defective, we will oppress you. We'll throw you out of our country. We will exterminate you. It's happened between Japanese and Chinese and Chinese and Koreans and and between Somalis and Kenyans and Americans and Africans. You're born wrong. You're born defective. You're genetically defective, so you must be oppressed. This is one form of political oppression. But it's not the only kind. Political oppression can come in, in different ways. It can come in your school. You can be rejected from sitting at someone's table because you're not a snit like the rest of the kids at the table. Or because you don't participate in the same things that are done in the locker room. Or because you don't drive the right kind of car or go to the right kinds of places at spring break. And you can be rejected because you don't have the right friends. Or, or spring break is coming up and you can be rejected unless you submit to the rules for what you're supposed to do at the beach. Or moms can reject other moms because their kids don't go to the right school or you don't dress the right way or drive the right kind of car or eat at the right kinds of restaurants. And others can be rejected from moving up in the, in the career ladder 
because you don't play the right games. You don't cut the right corners. And if you don't play that game, well, this is what's going to happen, they threaten. You're not going to be our friend. You're not going to be in our sorority. You're not going to be in our fraternity. You're not going to move up the ladder. You're going to lose your job. You're not going to be welcomed at our parties. You won't be welcomed at the club. You won't be whatever. It's political oppression. It's a system, official or otherwise, that organizes itself to say these are the rules. They're in addition to, they're contradicting God's rules, but unless you submit to them, we will make you pay. It's what happened in Egypt. And it's, and it's imposed by deeply paranoid and deeply insecure people. That's what's wrong with Pharaoh here. You see, he emphasizes seven times in verse 7. These people are multiplying. This is a, a literary device we'll notice throughout the book of, of Exodus that when something is really to be emphasized, it'll be repeated seven ways, seven times. So seven different ways he impresses, he's, he says they are multiplying, they're multiplying, they're multiplying. And they're going to multiply to the point that, that uh, they're going to take us over. So what are we going to do? We must enslave them, but not just enslave them, we must oppress them and, and discourage them and humiliate them. And that's emphasized ten times, uh, seven times as well in verses 12 to 14. Seven different words for oppression, for hard labor, for ruthlessness. Seven times, it almost as one man says, sounds like the crack of a whip on their back. We will oppress, we will oppress. We will oppress. You may feel that way. Of course, not a literal whack on the back, but you feel that you're constantly oppressed from every side and people are cutting you out. And you need to know this morning that only Jesus is Lord. The only one who has the right to tell you, you must live this way, is the one who has died for you. And until some other Lord does this for you, you need not submit to them. So God flexes His muscles. He creates, He lifts up His mighty arm, as Acts chapter 13 verse 17 says, and He fights on behalf of His people. He never intended his people to live in slavery in Egypt. We know that from the, from the care that Joseph took for his bones, we learn in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. That Joseph did not allow himself to be mummified and entombed in a pyramid, but he rather was embalmed, put in a casket, and made portable. You can see that when you watch the Ten Commandments at Easter. It's a little box that they hoist up on their, on their shoulders and they take away and follow whoever it is. Charlton Heston, I guess. But Joseph said, we're not intended to live here. I know from God's revelation, we are intended to live in Canaan because that's where God's going to fulfill his promises to send a Savior and, and accomplish our 
redemption. It was never God's intention for anyone ever to be enslaved or oppressed. You hear God's anger in Exodus chapter 3 verse 8 when it says, He came down, I have come down to set my people free. God always brings an end to slavery. He always brings an end to oppression. He always sets his people, his image bearers free. Even if they don't know his name, he will not tolerate his image being oppressed, enslaved, mistreated forever. God showed who was God. Pharaoh claimed to be Ray, the sun god, but the Son of God rose with healing in his wings and led his people out. Pharaoh said, I'm afraid of these people multiplying. Verse 10, he used an interesting Hebrew phrase, pen yerbi. But God caused his people to multiply, multiply, ken yerbi. You're afraid of them multiplying? I'm going to make them multiply even more. Because I made a promise to them. I made a promise, God says. I made a promise that they would multiply and become as numerous as the stars in the sky. I made another promise. Genesis 35, 11, I made a promise that they would be kings and queens. And I made another promise in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Not only would they be kings and queens, but priests. My people, especially those who name my name, will never live in submission to despotic rule. What does it take to live in your liberation and to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to live in that liberation? It's something like this. I remember hearing many years ago about a Christian professor who's teaching, and he started his career teaching in college. And he, he started his career in the tumultuous 60s. The students were protesting everywhere, and he was teaching along his sociology class, and a one upstart student jumped up in the back and started arguing with him about what he was teaching. And he told him in this large uh, auditorium, he told him to sit down. Sir, you don't have the f- privilege of the floor. You must sit down and listen to me. And, and, and if you don't, I'm going to give you a bad grade. And the, 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 the student said, so what? Well, if I, if I give you a bad grade, you may fail the course. And the student said, so what? Well, if you, if you fail the course, you might get, you might get kicked out of college. So what? Well, if you get kicked out of college, you won't be able to find a job. So what? Well, if you can't find a job, you might have to beg. So what? He knew he wasn't going to win that argument. It's what we do, too, with Jesus as our Lord. The world says, this is what you must drive, this is the way you must act, this is where you must live, this is the way you must speak, this is the way you must spend, this is the way you must live, this is the way you must cut corners. And we say, standing up 
under the Lord Jesus Christ who says, you follow me, you glorify me, I'll cause you to enjoy me and flourish and my laws will cause life to go well with you. You stand up under me and you say to the world, so what? Do to me what you will. My Savior has done this for me. There is nothing left to be done to gain my acceptance. I'm accepted in the beloved. Well, there's another oppression that's described here. It's in verses 11 through 14. And it's economic oppression. These Israelites were cut out of the economy. They had been allowed to participate in it, but they were literally disenfranchised. And they were disqualified for participating in the economy because of their birth, because of their genetic heritage. They were Jews. It's still true it's possible for people not to fully participate or benefit from our economy because they're born in the wrong zip code or born in the wrong income level. And here we have an opportunity, as many of you are participating in it, here we have opportunity to bless others with the blessings we've been given. That's the simple message of the gospel. It's not Marxist, as some people are prone to say now about a number of us who have been preaching the same gospel for, that's been preached throughout history. We're only preaching the gospel that Jesus said he came to announce. I come to bring good news to the poor. That there is a way to escape cyclical poverty. And that is not merely by picking yourself up by your bootstraps, but by Christians who are filled up by grace and given blessings to be able to bless other people. I know this congregation, as great as you are and as much as you do, you just need to know that the need is, and you will do something about it. Many of you are already doing something about it. I just want to mention three things out of a possible five that have been identified by Michael Gerson, a man I greatly admire, who was a speechwriter for George W. Bush and later uh, a member of his uh, administration. Michael Gerson grew up in the church I pastored in St. Louis. He went to our Christian high school, went to Wheaton College. He's a very strong evangelical Christian. And he has written a book called Unleashing Opportunity. And he enables, he, he identifies five areas that keep people in our country in perpetual poverty. The subtitle is Why Escaping Poverty Requires a Shared Vision of Justice. Social is not there. Social justice is not there. It's just justice. Because there's only one justice. It's that which the Bible presents. And there are three of those, three of those uh, economic oppressors that he mentions that I want to talk about today. Now, one is the word gap. Another is the graduation gap. And a third is predatory lending. The word gap is, works this way. Children who are born in low-income homes, no matter the color, but children born in low-income homes between the ages of one and four hear 30 million less words 
than those who grow up in higher income homes. Those who grow up in lower income homes between the ages of one and four hear 125,000 more words of discouragement than encouragement. Those who live in higher income homes hear 560,000 more words of encouragement than discouragement. That's the simple fact. And so what can we do? What can we do about that as Christians? We have words. And we have the ability to read them. And so many of you are already doing this, but others of you can participate in the many ministries that we have that have to do with children. Here is our, here is our list of them. Here is our lovely Ebony Henderson on the front of this, uh, wearing her Advanced Memphis t-shirt. And here is a list of our, of our ministries. And these are around the church. And we have lots of ministries here that deal with young children. And we read to them. We mentor them. We tutor them. And we give them words. Words not only that will increase their vocabulary, but words of encouragement And people who are encouraged succeed because God made the world to run by grace. There's also a graduation gap. 13-year longitudinal study by the Brookings Institute showed that children who grow up in low-income homes have a one in four chance of, of graduating from college, regardless of academic ability. They can be geniuses. If they grow up in low-income homes, which tend to result in other things too, broken families and so forth, they have a one in four chance of graduating from college. Those who grow up in higher income homes have a 60% chance of graduating from college, regardless of academic ability. That obviously sets one at a disadvantage if he graduates without a, doesn't graduate with a college education. We partner with ministries like Memphis Teacher Residency and and Peer Power, and Campus Outreach, and Advanced Memphis, and Hope Works, and many others that are again listed in this book to encourage kids to do well in school and give them an advantage throughout college. And then there is the problem of predatory lending. It keeps the poor poor. Predatory lending arose in the 1990s when America relaxed its usury laws. Usury is a sin that's been condemned almost from the beginning of the world, and it's, and it's generally this. It's generally been re- regarded that or been believed that any, any uh, interest above 8 to 10% is usury. It's impossible for someone to thrive and have to pay back something alone more than 10%. We relaxed those usury laws, and now there is a $27 billion a year industry for payday lending or predatory lending. There are 22,000 outlets. That's more than McDonald's franchises or Starbucks. $20 billion of the $27 billion is made on loans taken out to pay off previous loans. So that one is constantly behind, never catching up. Each state is allowed to set its APR, its, its interest 
rate, the limit of the interest rate, and Tennessee's limit is 450%. So that it costs you to borrow $300, it costs you $450. 459% to be exact. Missouri's is 1,200%. Now what can Christians do about this? Well, they can address it legally, but they can also address it with alternatives, which many Christians are doing throughout our country and throughout our world, setting up banks in, in, a, in a way to give interest-free loans uh, that, and, and allowing people to participate with dignity. Or diaconates are aggressively pursuing ways to help people meet basic needs instead of having to go to these kinds of predatory lenders. Someone in my previous church became aware that her friend who did ironing for a living needed a new iron. and She didn't have the money for it. She went to a, a, a payday lender and a $25 iron ended up costing her $100, which she would never have paid back had our friend not gone and paid it off and also given a good tongue lashing to the one who gave her the loan in the first place. You are creative people, uh, geniuses in the financial world, and we can do something about this to provide alternatives for the poor. There is a ministry called Operation Hope that is making an effort to do such things. We're running short on time, and I'll read later a letter a friend of mine wrote to one of his friends who set up such a payday lending operation and and my friend, who had never heard a sermon on this, never heard any application, never heard a Christian address it, but just by reading the book of Proverbs as he does every day, understood that God does not stand for such usurious practices. Those who are greedy for unjust gain make trouble for their household. And one who augments wealth by exorbitant interest gathers it for another who is kind to the poor. We find these opportunities because we're filled up with the gospel of Jesus Christ and have cups that overflow. We can do something about it and to declare good news. Some of you are overwhelmed just by hearing things like this today. Some of you are overwhelmed by the missions conference, the wonderful missions conference we just came through. And you think, I'm not a Christian who can do anything like that. I can't do anything like what those heroic missionaries describe. But you can. Because Jesus is your Lord. Just remember, remember. When, when his disciples were faced with the, with the crying need of the people who were hungry, what did he tell his disciples? He said, what do you have in your hands? Bring it to me. He multiplied it. I have some dear friends in Augusta who are relatives of Kevin and Nancy McQuillan they were, they were uh, business people, and, and uh, shortly after they became Christians, they went to a missions conference, and, and in that missions conference, the, the, mission, the mission speaker preached on that pair, on that, on that, uh, that story of feeding the 5,000, and the, and the mission speaker said, you just look in your hands, what do you have? Give that to Jesus and watch him multiply it. Well, they were brand new Christians, they didn't know any better than to take him literally, and so my friend reached into his pocket and 
pulled out a packet of tomato seeds that he had just purchased. He said, the preacher said, whatever you have in your hands, give it to the Lord. So I was going to plant these for myself, but I guess I'm supposed to give them to the Lord. So he went through the inner city and he started planting tomato plants for the poor. And then that grew into other things that he had in his hand. He found out that, that kids who, who take violin do better at math. So he learned, he took some violin into the, as a grade schooler. He was terrible at it, but he knew how to scratch out some notes. It wasn't anything like clay, but he could scratch out some notes. And so he started teaching inner city kids violin. Then he got involved in juvenile justice and he got involved in microenterprise and on and on and on. Recently he was honored significantly in Augusta, Georgia for his work in the city. But it all started with what's in your hand? Moses, what's in your hand? A stick? I can use that. I can use that to lead my people out of Egypt and cross the Red Sea and into the promised land. Just a stick. What do you have in your hand? Whatever you have, surrender to Jesus, the great Redeemer and Liberator. He will use to get a name for himself and demonstrate his strong and uplifted arm.